0: Hello everyone, you are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwall-Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. Okay, welcome everybody. Thank you for taking the time to join me on the Regenerative by Design podcast. Today we have a great guest. I am so excited to have Dr. Don Osborne joining us. Welcome, Don.
1: Hi, Joni. Glad, uh, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, no, this is this is great. We've been we've been talking about doing this for quite some time. And um, you know, for our listeners, so that they understand a little bit more about us, um, Dr. Osborne and I, and another um, gentleman by the name of uh, J- Jonathan Lendick. W- am I pronouncing that right? Jo- um,
1: that, that's
0: correct. Yeah, so uh, it's funny because I always I always talk to you guys on a first name basis because we are the founders of an organization called North American Millets Alliance, and so, um, you know, Don, I know for today I'm going to refer to you just by your first name, but you are Doctor Osborne, so I want to make sure that our listeners do understand that you um, have a formidable academic background, and we're going to dig a little deeper into that during our conversation today. So. Um, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule.
1: Okay, my my pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. And, and uh, yes, yeah, please keep it on a first name basis. Sometimes it feels a little <laughs> funny, but...
0: A little formal.
1: Yeah,
0: that's great. Yeah, and today we're going to talk about one of our favorite topics, which is dr- a drought resistant grain called millet or millets in plural. And we'll talk a little bit more about that nomenclature tension a little later in our conversation, but... You know, this is actually going to be part of a greater series that we're doing on the Regenerative by Design podcast um, that is titled Drought Resistant Grains in the Future of Food. And so we've also had John Manuel with Dryland Genetics on the show before, whom you're also acquainted with. And we have some other people who will be joining us, too. We've had um, Chef Pierre on the show as well. And so I, I love that eventually, you know, as we build out the series and it has a little bit more of a presence We'll have a whole section of it dedicated to this topic alone, which is really exciting because it's so important. So, um, go ahead and, and tell us, Don, where did you grow up and how did you get involved with what you ended up doing with your life's career, like through your academic studies?
1: Okay, yeah, uh, thanks. Yeah, it's uh, a while back now, but I still remember. Anyway, I grew up in the uh, suburbs, basically, of uh, New York and Philadelphia and Chicago. And, uh, uh in summers uh we would go to uh, my grandfather was uh retired and bought a farm in Northwest Connecticut a very picturesque country and he had uh, bought a dairy farm there and was doing dairy farming, which is really not very easy to do anymore in that region unfortunately the mm-hmm. economics of dairy farming changed but but uh, that was a unique uh, sort of experience uh, every summer and then uh, went to school undergrad in uh, at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore and was interested in international studies and possible career in foreign service or something like that. But through the course of my studies, I got more broadly interested in social science questions and uh, specialized a little bit, though still with an international uh, interest. And uh, ultimately, I went into the uh, the Peace Corps, uh, a chance to expand my horizons and contribute, I thought. But of course, I ended up learning a lot more uh, that experience or those experiences, then, then you get out of it. It's sort of a truism of people who have uh, uh, been Peace Corps volunteers.
2: Right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I was Africa. What years? In West Africa.
0: Don, just for a second, what, what years were you in your uh, undergraduate studies?
1: Uh, I, I graduated, I got my BA in 78. In
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and then in, I did some other stuff, uh, actually on the West Coast. I was in uh, Southern California for a little while and then went to um, Togo with Peace Corps and then did some traveling through the Middle East and Europe, and was checking out my options, considered graduate school, and actually went back into the Peace Corps with the uh, option of doing uh, forestry and was in the Sahel. So Mm -hmm. I picked up a lot of other things there uh, in terms of observing agricultural and pastoral systems at the same time, and then was in Guinea in the Phutagella Highlands, so three very different areas in in West Africa. Throughout which, uh, since the theme of this is millet, so I'll mention that I, I first introduced to uh, millet, singular. Oh, this mm-hmm. is millet. And it was pearl millet in 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 Togo, uh, 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 and um, then uh, it ate a lot more of that in Mali. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> actually, a lot of different ways. So there's very interesting uh, uh, details we could go into there later. And uh, I was interested also to fonio in in southern Togo in, in a traditional dish, especially. Uh, uh, that's cooked with um, black-eyed peas. The agpajo of the plateau region Right. Serve on special occasions. So it's really, and actually, it's a toasted grain because that, they use a toasting process to dehull it. So it's, it's uh. sort of funny later on when I was in Niger, I was talking with Pogliese who were in Niamey, they, they they couldn't believe that, that that the local people would would uh, pound their fonio with sand to dehull it. So this mechanically that helps de- dehull it. The greens rather than you know, like that and then you have to get the sand out of there and if you don't pay attention you've got sand in your meal a little green here and there oh yeah, so, yeah that anyways. wouldn't be so that, that, that
0: wouldn't be very nice and and chef Pierre no. did talk a little bit about the challenges with dehauling in our session we had with him and that's like a whole other conversation we should probably do like a, a panel discussion on which is um, the challenges to value added processing of, of these various millets around the world but you know Back to that experience, I, I, I would imagine that being in West Africa in the late 70s would have been quite eye-opening, um, especially coming from the suburbs of New York and Philadelphia and Chicago.
1: Yeah, it was indeed a lot of changes.
0: <laughs> how was um, that? So I mean,
1: it, was, oh, it was, well, it, it, I mean, you can talk with any Peace Corps volunteer. You go through a lot of stuff. You say, well, this is interesting. You say, oh, man, how am I going to get through this? Or, oh, what's going on here? Uh, and you, you're developing language skills and friendships and then familiarity with stuff. And then pretty quickly, you, you're kind of an old hand at, after like, you know, a, a year. And then the new people come in and you're showing them the ropes. But in reality, mm-hmm. you still don't understand a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. And um, right. you, you think you know more than you do at some points, But <laughs> but uh, you know, the people in those regions were really amazingly uh, friendly and, and forgiving all of full pause.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, it's a great experience. With a lot of you know physical and, and uh, uh, challenges sometimes you know when you get uh, ill from eating something that you might not have sure uh, yeah taking care to watch about but yeah, um, yeah so that, that that kind of introduced me to the whole millet sphere, but I didn't think a whole lot about it. I came back and did graduate studies in uh, uh, something called resource development, which is a combination of environmental studies and community development mm-hmm. uh it, uh, in the in, uh, College of Agriculture and Natural Resources. So there were some various courses I did there. And I also at the same time worked on a, a lexicon for uh, uh, Fofolde language or Fulani uh, of Mali, which was a very interesting process. I'd, I'd been learning that language and I'd been keeping notes and was able to do something with that. So it was very kind of yeah. a diverse uh, process. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, so that... So, I mean, then they worked internationally in various uh, capacities and, and developments. And, and then... Uh, was very interested in the language and technology aspects when people talk about how internet was going to revolutionize African agriculture, for instance. And in, in I don't know if you remember back then around the .dot com boom era, mm-hmm. there's all these kind of things. And I was, I was in Mali at the time, that some of that happened back in Mali. And I was looking at saying, "What are they thinking? You know, you bring a computer with French on it in front of a, a, a farmer, and he's not really going to see the point of it, and not going to understand a lot of it anyway that well. So, uh, but so uh, how to, to build right. language. Uh, capacities into the technologies that are being purveyed and still are still a struggle and behind that that, the whole language and development and i can can go off no it's
0: it's it's such an important point because when you look at the challenges of resource development technology and access to food you know commerce opportunities etc language is you know in the developing world a, a constant struggle because not all languages have what is needed to be translated into the language that's on a smartphone for instance and um I actually just had a really fascinating conversation with someone who's working on that um trying to help make um languages be able to be translatable on iPhones and 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 people I think in the United States really underestimate um how big of a deal that is um because when you're trying to access business and you speak a language that doesn't translate into something that is usable on a smartphone, um, it's a suddenly a significant barrier. So we could have a whole nother session just dedicated to that. But I love that you are aware of the barriers of language. And this leads us to a lot of our topics on millets and just some of the challenges that millets and other drought resistant um, small cereals and unknown grains face when they try to enter global markets Um, One of them, and I think it's one of the topics that you and I first talked about, was the lexicon surrounding millets and how millets are in the United States usually just referred to as millet. There's only one of them, and it's usually assumed to be proso, which is one of many, many, you know, um, just one of a huge body of of, um, plant species that are generally referred to as millets. I would love for you to just take a second and um, talk about your experience in Africa and how the vernacular around millets and food, you know, has really shaped the way you look at things today.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, some people think I'm a linguist, given some of my work, but I really not. I've had a little bit of coursework in that, but it's been an interesting to, to look at things from that point of view. The, um, you know, people are very clear what they're referring to uh, when they're growing it. And and they're obviously in very specific varieties of, of uh, you know, pearl millet, for instance. Uh, but uh, which farmers will know and recognize and use for sh- in certain circumstances because of their, their season length and, and their growth characteristics and so on. Um, farmers anywhere have a, a wealth of knowledge on, on these things, and those are language-based. But mm-hmm. I think uh, where uh, where it, it, I start to see some of the issues internationally now um, is um, that, that, that when we talk about um, a lot of the, the documentation is in, uh, dominant languages like English which uh, again shapes some of the thinking uh, for better or worse in other languages and one of the issues we have in English is that, that singular word millet mm-hmm. comes to stand for a lot of diverse things and people uh, I mean I, I could come up with a number of examples of just articles where they're they're kind of confusing uh, millets uh, saying that the, that the millet domesticated in China 5,000 years ago actually is what, what came you know, eventually was disseminated down into Africa. And that's not at all the case. Right, you know, the pearl right. was domesticated, different species was domesticated in, in Africa separately. So yeah. uh, I think the the, the linguistic, uh, the kind of sapper war sort of thing, a weak
2: mm-hmm. sapper
1: war theory, for those people familiar with that whole discussion, which we won't get into, but uh, <laughs> it, it yeah. does shape the thinking. So that's why I insist on the plurals as much as possible. I would suggest that during the year International Year of Milks, which is coming up next year, that the the press and, and people writing about it, try to angle it to use the plural as much as possible. Not millets is a grain, but millets are grains. And then you can get down to specifics and say, this one is very high in calcium. Yeah. Uh, that one has extremely uh, uh, drought tolerant characteristics and so on. Once you get into the details, it really gets interesting. It's like a family, if you will, mm-hmm. or a tea. Everyone has its own strengths and weaknesses and together. They, they present a, a, a whole... Array of resources to use uh, that are sustainable and, and fit into regenerative farming, and then dealing with uh, you know drought conditions or less availability of water and mm-hmm, so on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So a lot yeah. of, of things. That-
0: it's such a good point, and I think it can't be overstated. um And I, I'd love for our listeners to really take this away after our conversation that you know there is this entire group of cereals um or gr- like grain crops that are you know, really kind of have a confusing existence when it comes to, you know, the English recognition because of the word millet and, um, right. and that it, you know, when, when you do look at the impact of food, global food systems and bringing back biodiversity to our farming landscapes, they, they, as a group play a huge role because of their adaptability, but not all of them are, you know, set up for drought resistant um you know cultivation like proso certainly is sorghums certainly are but some of these other millets um do lend themselves more to higher humidity environments and i think again that just lends to the confusion so you know don I, I know that we're kind of going down this train but real quick i do want you to to lean in a little bit about what you did for your phd studies and what you focused on when you went back and finished up your schooling
1: Okay, yeah, I was very interested in systems, and I still am, how, how things work together. So that, I mean, language being a part of that, a lot of times in, de- in development studies, people kind of separate that out. Uh, and ultimately, when I did my uh, dissertation, that was, uh, language was not a, uh, a focus. Okay. Uh, I, I, I used terms in there. I mean, I explained how terms were used, which was important in understanding where the mindsets of people were, but I was really looking at. Herder-farmer relations Mm -hmm. and uh, the whole dynamics around that in the in this unusual region in uh, central Mali called the Inland Niger Delta. It's basically where the Niger River overflows. It's very shallow. There's an annual flooding system, Mm -hmm. so the the Niger and the Bani rivers, which come uh, from the direction of Guinea and Ivory Coast, respectively, kind of join uh, in that area. And when the range upriver kind of fill the river up that all kind of converges down there and spreads out and it allows rice cultivation and some areas are too deep for uh, rice, indigenous and African rice. Mm-hmm. And uh, areas become very excellent for uh, grazing during the dry season when the waters go down. Mm-hmm. And, but there's a whole set of regimes of how people uh, from different ethnic groups actually with different languages, but they, they, they all are interacting historically over the ages, how they coordinate those uh, movements of herds in and out, mm-hmm. the benefits so having uh, cattle on, on certain kinds of land uh, during the off season, uh, so it's very interesting uh, understanding those systems and how those are changing in in uh, uh, the, the face of what was already uh, climate change of the sort. There, yeah, when the, the river were, were lower, so when the, the sure. river levels were lower, hold, the whole dynamic of the region changes when there's not as much water, not as much water coming up. Yeah, how it, That's that was basically what I was looking at there.
0: Right, water uh, is was, such a driver to climate. Um, yeah, I would imagine that would be reshaping the entire agricultural and you know animal husbandry system of that region.
1: So that's that's what I did on that. So I I, as you can probably tell, I'm in a lot of different areas. So
0: yeah, no, yeah, it's interesting. I
1: yeah. never really focused on that at all. But I'll tell you a funny story if you want one. When I first yeah. came back, and I was in, in East Lansing for uh, uh, graduate studies, uh, I went to a, a local food co-op, and I saw a bin with. Uh, millet in it, and I said, oh, okay, great. I haven't had that in a while, so uh, I took some out, and it didn't look quite the same, and I cooked it up, and it didn't taste quite the same. Well, it was pro-show millet. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it not at all like, like a pearl millet. It tastes different, if you if you know the two. I mean, they're both good in their own way, but they're just different. Yeah. And uh, I didn't really think a whole lot more about it until later, and then I, I was uh, through marriage associated with uh, Chinese culture and food culture, which is an amazing
2: discussion. Mm-hmm. Also. Mm-hmm. But
1: you know, when the millets used there, they also use proso millet, but especially foxtail millet, uh, xiaomi, sure. uh, in a lot of things. And then uh, then I was in East Africa later on and encountered uh, finger millet in uh, a beverage called bouchera, a non-alcoholic malted beverage, which I really like. I think I have a great potential as sort of a natural energy drink here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's malted grain. Actually, they use uh, finger millet and sorghum in it. Uh, and right. other people, uh, companies that can it and they export it, but on very tiny uh, quantities. So anyway, that so. I, but it was, and it was later on. I kind of stumbled into an Indian uh, food market, which was really well stocked. And then they found, oh, here's pearl millet. I couldn't find all these years in the U.S. Now here's all, all this other stuff, you know, finger millets and stuff like that. So I began to pay real attention to how things were labeled and mm-hmm. marketed. That's about like seven years ago. So when, when the International Year of Millets came up. Uh, in the thinking that the proposal from India, which was the first proposal was in 2018, I was watching that space. And uh, when it was declared in 2021 by the UN General Assembly that 2023 will be the international year of uh I started talking with people. And, and you happily were among them to to begin to try to do something in North America to uh, highlight these grains uh, and their potential here. Because it's mm-hmm. North America is very different than Asia or Africa. We don't grow millets that much except as a forage or uh, cover crops sometimes for wildlife there's a variety of species of millets that are used quite a quite a variety actually about six or so different millets uh half a dozen that are used out of the dozen i, I think we should say we talk about the whole group there's about a dozen uh, cultivated millets although there are a bunch of minor ones so the number might push like 18 or something like that that are cultivated here or there mm-hmm. but anyway the, the other ones of uh, grow here almost all of them are not for human food some are for bird food and others for agricultural uses only proso and then teff which is considered a millet as well from mm-hmm. on, on the Horn of africa that uh, is uh a- also grown for food mostly in the in the inner, inner mountain west Other other
0: right Vietnam, yeah and also for animal um feed purposes as well and it's interesting yes. how um you know in my, in my work with snacktivists, because I do have a reputation of making human grade food out of millets, both TEF and PROSO. And we're interested in developing foods from other lesser known millets as well. We just don't have the foundation of value added processing and the agricultural foundations really established here yet. But, you know, in talking to some other um, people who are involved in regenerative agriculture, like Dr. Alan Williams with understanding egg he said he has a number of farmers that are growing foxtail and a number of other millets and they want to grow more and they would love to have a value stream for you know human grade food because they would they're just literally like either letting the cattle out on it afterwards or just cutting it and using it as as a cover crop without any real um consumption of the seed head like they don't even let it really fully mature And But they would love to, and and really the issue that they're up against is that there's no domestic processing and no domestic market for it, which is unfortunate when you look at the nutritional profile of, say, foxtail. Um, The millets in general have fantastic nutritional profiles, but when you look at them in terms of what our typical carbohydrate consumption is in our country, which lends itself to a high incidence of metabolic syndrome like diabetes and other diet-related diseases, if we were to shift our, our domestic diet to including more millets, it could actually make a significant impact on our you know, diabetic management or our other diet-related disease management. And that's something that I think we need to take a very serious look at as a nation.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, there's, there's just so much uh, potential here. Uh, the, 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 these are grains which were, were very ancient in, in our use Archaeologists are realizing how important they were. Now, a long time, a long time, for a long time, they were discounting that.
2: Yeah, uh, But they, they were.
1: fell out of Caduceus, because they're a little harder to process. They, they're, they're, you don't get quite as big a visual return as you do with some of the other grains. And certainly, once we get to the Green Revolution time, you can do a whole lot with fertilizers with some of these crops rice and wheat and corn, uh, and I, I suppose barley as well. But you can do a lot with those. Uh, with fertilizers and, and millets that really the experimenting and the work with that hasn't been that uh, promising thus far, although things are, are developing. I mean, I, I, there's probably much more going on with the various millets that I'm aware of. I'm trying to follow too many things. But yeah, the, the, But the, the consumer thing you mentioned, I think is so key. How do you get people interested in this because there's small grains? Um, I, yeah, it, it's a little bit out of our experience to eat something so small and little if you, mm-hmm. if you cook it like rice. Yep. uh you could i think you if you yourself have experience with you combine a little bit of uh some kind of millet with rice and and you cook them together and that mm-hmm. makes it, uh, a uh thing, uh, nutritional boost there you can you can work those things flour into a lot of different stuff Boxtail actually uh size wise i think could be an interesting uh option for a, a moroccan couscous mm-hmm. kind of dish mm-hmm. uh you can just steam those up, uh, and then it's almost the same size, and they yeah. they uh, they have a, a really interesting nutritional uh, profile. You know, not that you, you have to do away with the wheat-based ones, but it would be a nice option. Actually, seriously, well, flavor yeah, is good walk. too. It is, it is you know, good. And here's another thing that, that as far as couscous goes, um, we talked with Chef Pierre about this. The whole kind of thing between Morocco and Senegal, who had the first couscous, but that actually is a, a thing that the African. West Africans have been cooking couscous for a long time, but with different grains, not with wheat. They'd use fonio mm-hmm. or, or cracked millet,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and uh, I guess you do cracked sorghum. Of you can do too. You can also do cracked corn. So because, uh, and, and that's that's coming to the diets too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're steaming up uh, the the cracked grains uh, and eating it with us, it's really delicious. But it's a different taste. You know, it's like if you have a pearl millet uh, couscous or corn couscous, it's different than, than Moroccan couscous or, mm-hmm. or, or something that you used uh Fox goes, So this uh, variety is that kind of variety something consumers really want or can handle or is it something that that becomes um is much something simple i i, I don't know but the the the, uh, the options are out there the possibilities are out there how to how to bring those into a popular uh, vernacular if you will yeah is, is
0: well it's like we've got to warm people up to it a little bit because the american palate is so engineered for like pasty flavorless white flour products it's just like we're trained for it even in wheat I mean historically ancient wheats have more of a yellow hue they have a richer nuttier flavor and even wheat has been bred to really um, deliver this very flavorless nutritionless kind of pasty white starch and um, which is unfortunate because it's kind of trained people away from appreciating the nuances of what a whole grain food can deliver from a flavor, nutrition, and um, overall experience, you know, kind of level. It's just really um, kind of dumbed down our palate, which is too bad. So, you know, we do have a lot of work to do and that's why I generally mix it with like a basmati white rice. um, So that way people can go, oh, I love this. I've never had anything like this. How can I have this again? (laughs) So we've often looked into you know, creating some products so we can introduce people to these new flavors and experiences through something that they find a little more familiar. Which rice is a really familiar food for most people in the United States.
1: Yeah, I mean that, that's that's it. So I think that some thinking has to be done there. Maybe some popularization during the year is really the opportunity to do that. And I think that's what, what that's certainly what you and I and and Jonathan and and others that we've been talking with mm-hmm. have been. Uh, Working on is how, how, to, how, what kind of angle to do that. Is it webinars? Well, that hits the intellectual side. Is it kind of a conference? Well, that could be a lot of exchange of information. Could it be yeah. some kind of cooking uh, videos or something like that? Well, that could be of interest to people. So I don't know. Yeah. Is it, is it a full press or, or are there particular uh, points of pressure points, if you will, or, or, uh, uh I kind of think of the, 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 the gem analogy, places that you can hit the gem where it's actually everything opens up. Um, but uh what those are i i I think that's something we're still trying to figure yeah. out we'll be talking
0: with <laughs> that's with the big them. question yeah. i am glad you brought up cooking education because i think that that is such a huge deal and um hopefully with UN you year the millets um next year we can get the attention of more chefs and um you know i'm going to be presenting at a trade show um just next month and it's going to be focused on college and university cafeterias. And it's going to be fascinating. I'm actually putting together a survey for the chefs and the directors of food service who will be attending that show to try to kind of evaluate where they're at as far as their knowledge of alternative grains. I mean, everyone knows quinoa at this point. I think quinoa's done a very good job and we can learn a lot from how that's penetrated the markets, but um, it'll be fascinating to talk to them because they're catering to younger people. And, you know, you look at college kids, they're more exploratory. They want to try new things and definitely very concerned with climate resiliency um, and food systems. So that'll be fun. But, you know, honestly, Don, I think right now it'd be really great for us to talk about what Millet um, and, and why we've founded NAMA, which is North American Millets Alliance, um, why we are passionate enough about this group of cereal crops to actually create a foundation to raise awareness can you tell us a little bit about the founding of NAMA and how that all went down?
1: Well, it's it, it, it kind of emerged organically. Maybe that's appropriate. I mean, yeah. uh, Jonathan <laughs> and I know each other for a long time from both having been at uh, MSU and PhD programs and, and uh, in Peace uh, Corps staff uh, later in our careers. And um, so I, I, just, I just brought the topic up with him and said, hey, you know, you've, you've, you've worked with one or another Millet over the years. Uh, what, what do you think, and maybe you could do something in, in this region to popularize, Miller. so it kind of grew out of that. And, and, and then you and I kind of met fortuitously, what was it, on LinkedIn or something?
0: Yeah, I think um, it was on we, LinkedIn. <laughs>
1: I, I carried on that conversation and kind of uh, I grew it in there. And I, again, there are other people we've been talking about with individually and, and so on that have been uh, productive along the way, but uh, so we, it just basically uh, needing to, to start with something. Uh, in some ways it may be a little bit of a stone soup sort of process. Uh, whether I should admit that or not. So you start with what mm-hmm. you can and then yeah. kind of build in with other people. Are. So there's a lot of activity out there, as you, as you know, uh, very well. And, you, and I've learned, always learned stuff about what you're uh, from you, about what you're encountering. But, um, you know, as far as uh, artisanal grains at a, at a local milling, as far as uh, uh, different kinds of movements, so, there's, and then, of course, the, the the major issues are how farmers with, with, with farms uh, and large investments in those and you know, are living to make off of them are trying to figure out how to adapt to uh, uh, less availability or pricier water and, and, and mm-hmm. how to... So, there's just a whole lot of uh, thinking and, and, and tumult. I've called it an ebullient space very quietly. I mean, nobody really is realizing this, but there's, there's uh, just the, all the work that's being done with pro millet, for instance, uh, in uh, the the plains uh, as, as a potential grain, a potential uh, item in chicken feed. This, I, I, I had not heard the interview with the John that well, but I'm sure he mentioned that just by feeding chickens with, with millet instead of uh, corn corn, uh, you could save huge amounts of water on, on the, the, the birds themselves or the eggs they lay. Yeah, uh, uh, m- Huge and measurable in terms of river flow. So this is, uh, it's not a small issue. It's uh, a uh, huge of-
0: issue. I mean, when you look at the aquifer and river, Water availability right now. I think John told us it was something, and you know he, he can he can chime in and correct. But it was something significant, like sixteen or eighteen gallons per egg of water saving when you switch to a proso based feed away from a corn based feed. And in the reason water for that is the
1: really doesn't need doesn't, really doesn't need uh, irrigation. Yeah. I mean no, no, it's I mean it's like anything. That if you give them irrigation, they might do a little better. But even yeah. if you irrigate, you don't do very much. Right. So it's not as demanding at all as, as corn. Yeah. So it's just it's adapted in different situations, and farmers make, you know can realize this. And I think planners and ag planners, people who are in these different spheres, realize these things. So behind the scenes, I think there might be a lot of shifts to millets in some ways.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, how,
1: how that works in terms of like human food and in terms of uh, integrating millets into stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, all kinds of experiments in Mexico. There was experiments of putting ten percent foxtail millet in, in tortillas, and and people liked it. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't it didn't change the quality in any negative way. Mm-hmm. Um, probably was more nutritious than than, uh, the flour tortillas and the flour. So uh, anyway, just a a lot of different angles behind the scenes, but then in in, in the front end, how do you really get people interested in that? And maybe these kind of heritage food sort of things or just kind of, or or some way of popularizing that this is a different taste experience. Mm -hmm. Or like I said, the uh, beverage, the bushera, the Ugandan bushera beverage, which is non-alcoholic, but you can can drink it. yeah the the drink
0: space is hot too right now people are really open-minded as far as exploring new types of drinks I mean look at the non-dairy milk aisle it's really crazy what's happening over there so I think that's a huge opportunity to get new um, and novel things in front of people but you know we've talked about this a lot like the whole heritage and You know, like Old Ways um, as a foundation and the Whole Grains Council, they've done fantastic work. But I really think where people are at is like they're thinking about the future. Like what is the food of the future? And you and I know, and, you know, as many of our colleagues do, is that a lot of the secrets of how we can create a better future lie in the past and deep in history. And it's that ancient grains, modern table concept. But I think really what resonates with people is futuristic thinking. That's why people love technology and Elon Musk and, you know, climate change is going to be some technology play and no, really. And it's probably going to be a nature-based solution. If you really want to know it's, it's not as, it's not as fancy and tech and futuristic, but nature-based solutions and things like millets and old heritage grains really are the future. Like, how do we make them futuristic and sexy? That's the key, <laughs> and so I don't know. Like yeah. I, I, know we've talked a lot about this with Jonathan. Like, and and like with millets, it's like millets are the future. Like, let's really put a future focus on it.
1: Yeah, I mean they're they're they're, they're the Janus space, They're 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 the past and the the distant past and the future. Yeah, I think definitely there, but here's a, here's a phrase though. I forget who came up with this. It might've been, uh, Joanna Kane Potaka or, or one of her colleagues. Oh no, it wasn't, uh, Tapas Chandra Roy. I forget somebody was writing and they put the, uh, the future of food is many, not more. Yeah. Now I, I don't usually like these, these all these alternatives. Usually there's, there's a life is more complicated than black and white. It's this or it's that, but, but the, the but the whole idea of uh, the future of food as many, uh, I wow. think addresses a lot of things. That's great diet, in terms of ag adapting to different uh, uh, different circumstances for planning that, that are changing as, as we speak, in terms of even issues like overall global supply, like uh, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and all that's happening with food supplies. It, it, if you're producing a lot of different things uh, in different places, the the overall supply, so you're, you're, the future of food is many, can also mean more uh, mm-hmm. at, the, at the same time. But I think that that, that accent might be a good one, uh, whether it's catchy or not i put it might be a good one just to
0: play out I think that's awesome and in fact I'll reach out to Tapas and Joanna and try to figure out who who we can credit with that statement because um I'm putting together a keynote for a conference that's going to be next month here artists it's an artisan mm-hmm. grains conference and this is so central to the theme it's like biodiversity and resiliency and that many not just more is really Really sums it up. Honestly, like that's that's really fantastic. I'm going to reach out to them and and uh, find out who I can credit for that at this um, speech in July. So, okay. I I think that you know with the millets alliance, our our NAMA group that that also does play into what we're talking about there as well, where millets plural have a, such a strength because of the biodiversity and that they've not really been tampered with from a really intensive Um, agronomic perspective so there's you know unfortunately we've experienced a lot of biodiversity loss in the millets I mean there were thousands of little land race varieties at one point scattered throughout the world and luckily people like tapas uh, Chandra Roy are out there trying to preserve that germplasm that's out there in the very far remote corners of India and trying to document that and to preserve it in seed banks so that we don't lose that genetic variety because that is likely going to be what is our greatest strength moving into the future of um, food security for the planet is that biodiversity piece.
1: You're you're right. I think that's very much the case. Well, I can tell you another quick story that I heard. I wasn't part of this process, but FAO had a a series of uh, seed fairs in Northern Mali uh, before the year 2000. And this is after a series of droughts and so on. They brought farmers together and they showed off what they were growing and so on. And, Surprisingly, there were farmers from some villages that were seeing great uh, varieties of, of pearl millet that they hadn't seen in years, they thought were lost. They were being grown in villages not all that far away, but they just didn't know, and, 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 not, and then they knew that. So I think part of it, what, uh, the, the, the idea of preserving gene plasm is very important, is essential, but I think the, it, the systemic aspect of, of in-situ conservation, if you will, if, if you're able somehow to keep the farming systems viable, so that farmers can keep these things going, mm-hmm. and they don't become, you know, bought by major seed companies and, and not accessible except by a commercial aspect, or or, or basically, or competed out by by uh, uh, less cost seeds for, for certain varieties, not others. If you somehow find a way to keep those varieties uh, available where they're useful and, they, and they're used, uh, that that would, I think, be another part of the equation.
0: Uh, yeah, definitely. I don't think- it's interesting to look at the, the value of that biodiversity and keeping that, um, obtainable, um, cost of seeds down. Um, it's such a big deal globally, especially, um, and you know, a lot of times I don't want to get political with the whole GMO thing, but one of the things that we often don't recognize in the GMO versus non-GMO world is one of the big drivers is cost, um, and access of, to seeds, And when you look at Mm -hmm. the cost of genetically proprietary, you know, seeds, it's prohibitive in in developing nations. Um, And we've created these farming systems that are so reliant on very expensive inputs, both fertilizers and proprietary seeds, that it costs out um, many farmers in many parts of the world. And even American farmers are starting to feel that pressure now where they're like, we can't afford these inputs. We can't afford these seeds it's another argument to really advocate for these crops that are kind of lost or forgotten small cereals that are affordable. They don't need the expensive chemical inputs. They don't need expensive irrigation. They may not produce the same yields that you would get with like a, uh, you know, like a Roundup Ready corn. But in the long term, if you look at the cost of what it costs to produce a you know, 100 acres of millet that didn't need extensive irrigation, extensive fertilizers, extensive XYZ. Well, you're, you're creating something that didn't need thousands of dollars of inputs that we don't calculate into the, the end cost of that crop. If, if you see what I mean right. there, it's like the, it's like the, ca- the cost calculations we've used haven't brought in the entire picture. It's like they're too reductionistic right. and only looking at one type of yield and it's calories, you know, but the cost of those calories is often high from an environmental standpoint.
1: And yeah, you're absolutely right. But all those things really, in a good model, all those things should be brought in. But yeah, I think you're right, probably it isn't as much as it should. But yeah, it's a it's, uh, tremendously, uh, as I say, brilliant space. There's a lot of potential here. The issue with some of the mills is, is the production is not that high, uh, although that, there's work on that, you know, in terms of breeding and, and uh uh, uh appropriate uh, fertilizer uh, applications in some cases, which really in some cases, farmers are uh, farming on very poor soils. Mm-hmm. So your pearl millet which is, will produce something, but it's not necessarily, there was a whole lot better than nothing. <laughs> but how can you maybe uh, find a way that's environmentally uh, uh, sound and, and uh, uh, to, to be able to increase those yields? Mm-hmm. A lot of times that's what i hear staff as farmers are saying, hey, oh, can you get me some fertilizer? Say, well you know, what exactly is you, your issue? What are you looking for? But, um, you know, the, the, uh, yeah. So the, the, there's a lot of issues involved, but this is, we need to be talking about them a lot more. I yeah. think is, is it it's good complex. time to, to plug, uh, to plug NAMA for
2: a second. Yeah. Come back
1: to that. Yeah. Just, just, uh, just the whole idea of the North American Millets Alliance is, is really trying to bring together, uh, people thinking about, uh, millets, particularly in North America. And the whole concept really is to complement the, uh, the International Year of Millets, which will naturally be focusing a lot more on the on the main millets growing regions, and where sometimes the farmers have stopped cultivating millets, and uh, how to bring those back because they're they're nutritionally so good and, and environmentally sound to to grow. But uh, North America is kind of unique in some ways. a lot of uh, what we do. Uh, we'll, we, we will see more millets grown in North America. I mean, that's certain, uh, and we will see more consumed by people. Even if marginally from diverse sources, I think that's what, what the future is saying. But really, being able to bring people together who are working on these things in different angles and, and share uh, information and uh, and strategies and uh, and build on on what what we have and and work on and see how those work with the international markets. Because if people are, are eating more different millets in the U.S., that means that's uh, good for farmers here. It's good for their own health, but also means that that some of those uh, uh, farmers in the, in the Asian Africa, for instance, can export mm-hmm. markets here because there's a right. lot of millets growing in uh, India, or even in in West Africa, for instance, that yep. aren't really grown here, uh, or even in, in China, like the foxtail. Nobody, hardly anybody, is growing foxtail for for uh, for grain here. Uh, but the, the so the Chinese uh, market, of people who are cooking Chinese in in North America, would buy their foxtail millet imported from China. So you just have a—it's a complex, and multi-dimensional. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it, but if we can um, increase communication, so Nama is kind of increased communications. We can maybe do more together. So Nama has kind of been described by by one of our correspondents. I forget who it was. Now a sort of a neutral party, mm-hmm. which I think is something that's sort of overarching and trying to bring people together, not advocating for a particular product yeah. or a particular or a particular region uh, within the area, but trying to to. to uh, to advance the process for everybody.
0: Yeah, absolutely, which is so important. So, um, you know, and, and I like that you brought up this whole creating that consumer pull that can support farmers globally who are growing millets because, like we just described, in many parts of the world, they're one of the only crops that really is, you know, doable. You know, like with the poor soil or lack of access to irrigation, minimal access to fertilizers, they can't compete on a commodity market, but they can compete in a specialty market. And if we can create more consumer demand for these types of grains, it could be revolutionizing to some of these communities like what has been demonstrated with quinoa. And we've learned a lot from quinoa because there were, were some very detrimental sourcing practices and very detrimental agricultural practices that were happening in the Andes when quinoa really spiked in its popularity But we've learned a lot about how to create a beneficial, um, both from a social perspective, but also from an environmental perspective of how do we create um, fair trade type processes to Mm -hmm. bring these um, into the broader global markets. And now what we're finding is, you know, what in my conversations with Sergio de Nunez de Arco, Arco, we'll we'll bring him onto the show at some point as well, too. I I keep trying to get him on um, for the fall but he worked a lot in bolivia in the, in the altiplano with um you know the quinoa harvesting there starting i think in the late 90s even and what they've found and they have studies to show that the household per capita income was literally like 10 to 20xed it's something significant because of the quinoa projects and that because of that global demand for quinoa they were able to secure um Um, education for those families that had been historically living at a very very impoverished level for decades and so Mm -hmm. you know when you look at the power of creating a new consumer demand for a crop it can revolutionize parts of the world that desperately need capital
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i mean uh, it's really a, a positive i guess there's some concern that, 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 that the families themselves aren't eating as much as the quinoa i'm not sure yeah. where that is but yeah that was a, a
0: huge concern <laughs> yeah and i think that they've yeah. been able to help like fix that um in a lot yeah. of the areas where they recognize like uh-oh they also recognize that when they were forcing the quinoa to have too high of yields and they weren't using regenerative farming methods that quinoa actually stopped being a complete protein which was always one of the selling points of quinoa. And when they started mass producing it and forcing that extractive model, it actually harmed the nutritional profile of the quinoa. And now they've actually had to really try to work to to fix that as well. So there's a lot we can learn from the quinoa experience. And hopefully we can Mm -hmm. prevent that same problem from um, happening around the world with millets as well.
1: Indeed, yeah, good point. And I, I just uh, add on the asterisk there that, that that quinoa, amaranth, and buckwheat are not millet. Sometimes you'll see them described mm-hmm. as millets. They're small grains. They're very healthy. They're good for you. They're part of the picture. I, I eat uh, actually all of them at one point or another during that course of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, they're they're not technically millet. So we're really talking about uh, grass species that are um, in the actually in the uh, wheat, rice, corn, mm-hmm. uh, barley. Those are all grass species. Monocots. Famous. No, it's, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, they're grown as monocots, but they can't be antir- mo- with stuff. Sorry,
0: monocots. I, it's interesting. Monocots. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Like with the quinoa and amaranth and buckwheat, they are broadleaf. Like they're not grasses. And and I'm glad that you brought that up because right. there is often a lot of confusion because they're all kind of right. lumped into this big, broader group. But yeah, you're right. They're yeah, not grasses. Yeah, must be mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, I, I love how we're just working together to create more awareness for, for millets in the world and, and um, for our health and for um, the environment. So before we wrap things up, Dawn, cause I know you're so passionate about the lexicon, what work is, is NAMA doing to help streamline the the definitions for the various m- millets? Um, like we just, like we just discussed, there's often confusion with amaranth and buckwheat and, and quinoa and beyond. Um, you know, do we have any plans to try to, pull, you know, do an education to really try to help people understand the difference between these different crops?
1: Yeah, good, good question. I mean, I could easily see it being a webinar, but that's not going to solve a problem by itself by any stretch. Uh, it's, um, I think, a lot of it begins with the plural aspect, as simple as that sounds. Because once you, because the, the, the thing is with millet. Linguistically, the, the the singular form also doubles as a mass noun, or or a uh, uh, collective noun, if you will, You're standing for a bunch of stuff. It's like furniture. Furniture is a mass noun. You don't have to say furnitures. You, I suppose you could. <laughs> it, it could but 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 millet is is one that can also hold a plural. But as long as you use a singular form, a lot of people are going to hear a singular thing.
2: Mm-hmm. So. We'll
1: use, Getting, getting uh, uh, the, the, the dynamic, in, uh, to, and not only in English, but in, in, in many other languages, too, uh, getting uh, to be able to use a plural already signals that there's something else going on. Mm-hmm. That's I think uh, like one uh, one key step. As far as nomenclature, um, Some you'll see that teff and phonio and sorghum, sorghum sometimes considered a millet, sometimes not. It's a debate we don't need to get into, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, assuming it's hard to, they have their own name. They're like millets with their own name, so their identity is secured. People yeah. think, oh, yeah, they see it on the shelf, Bob's Red Mill or somebody else, uh, you know, Fonio, uh, they see Yolele or Atacor uh, or one of these other brands, mm-hmm. they, they, they know Fonio or something. But Pearl Millet, and what is that? And, you know, what's the difference between Foxtail Millet and Finger Millet? I mean, yeah. uh, nobody really understands. So, should in the same vein, like we we have. We, we speak of canola oil rather than rapeseed oil,
0: right?
1: There's, a, there's more than just a renaming involved. There's a different uh, breeding process that led to it, and so on. But uh, but but you, you you canola is a consumer-friendly name. It's something that you that, that you can remember. It, it's a, uh, it has an identity that that it gives this particular oil, uh, which is different than the original rapeseed uh, 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 common name. So. Uh, yeah, is, is that possible? For instance, finger millet is you'll hear finger millet, which is the one that's very high in calcium, and that they make the buchera beverage uh, uh, from in Uganda. But you'll hear it uh, often referred to as the uh, Indian name, the uh, common in several Indian languages of ragi. Mm-hmm. Uh, would marketing it as ragi uh, could that take off as far as that particular millet? Oh yes, this happens to be finger millet, but we call it ragi, mm-hmm. uh, and then that takes off. So, and, and and where where would you borrow the names from, and and, and how would that work? Because that might be something in the longer term, but that's going to take a lot of discussion, uh, especially where the the the, uh, the markets or or the, the habits are in a particular direction. Right. Every call approach proto millet, simply millet. that's, that's pretty much. Uh, I wouldn't say it's indelible, but it's sort of embedded in the marketplace right now. Mm-hmm. Um that people are saying millet or you see it in the store shelf and then you're thinking this one thing it happens to be pro show in the u.s it's always pro show it says millet um, yeah.
0: yeah it just so really you- really plays into the need for um the brand identity of all these different millets to be developed and you know then you look at like you know champagne versus sparkling wine is there going to be some sort of um regional intellectual property you know like if you did go with the indian name, you know, is there some sort of stake to that name that would prevent um, people from taking it and using it in other parts of the world? So it does get rather complex really, really quickly. So for everyone who's listening, if you want to continue to learn about how we're solving these big issues, you know, definitely make sure that you go to the North American Millets Alliance webpage and sign up so that you, you know, get our newsletters and follow us on LinkedIn and on social media so that you can learn more about what we're doing. I mean, we are a very small, brand-new organization, not heavily funded or backed by big organizations that have lots of right resources. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, right now, it's just funded um, on, on nothing, just air. So, you know, it, it, it's just from the passion of people who want to get this done and see that Millets are the future and could hold a lot of solutions um, to major problems we face as a world as we, you know, just navigate a changing planet and a changing climate and a growing population. So, um, you know, as we wrap this up, what are some of the action items that people could do? Like if they're listening to this and they're all charged up about millets and they're like, oh my gosh, I wanna do something. Where should they start? Other than buying one of our millet sampler boxes that we'll eventually have available, um, what, what could they do?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I suppose that uh, it, it, it begins with what you're saying. Is try some out uh, in, in, in different ways, um, and then if you really want to be more adventuresome, uh you can go to uh, markets that that sell uh, South Asian or, or Indian foods, and you'll find a lot of millets there. If you really mm-hmm. want to take a a, a tour, the, typically they'll have a number of different things, and you might have to ask them what it is. If it says ragi, that that's uh, finger millet. If it says bajra, it's going to be pearl millet, but, uh, and sometimes they're flowers, you could bring them in and build them into something. Teff mm-hmm. uh, also works very well as a flour in, in, in some uh, baked goods. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, or, or even in markets that are selling Chinese foods, they're, they're gonna have usually two millets there, the, the, the xiaomi and the, the proso. but uh, the xiaomi is the real little one, they're smaller than proso, mm-hmm. and that can be cooked, or cooked as sort of a, a, a couscous sort of thing. Or or blend it into stews and so on. So yeah, th- th- I say that would be a, a way to educate yourself. In terms of action uh, beyond that, uh, the average consumer, I think that you know, ask you know if you wanted to have something that that's uh, not there. For instance, uh, I, I've talked with some local markets about well, okay, could you carry this? Uh, there's actually a, 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 a teff based granola produced by the only farm growing teff as a grain in Michigan. And I just asked a couple of stores locally. Hey, can you stock this? So you can also do that. Great if you point. See
0: something yeah, ask online. your supermarkets, ask your retailers, especially if you shop at like a cool independent health food store. Like that is a great request to because I think that needs to happen everywhere. I really urge consumers to say, where are the things that are regenerative? Where are the where are the climate friendly crop products like? you know, millets and teffs and sorghums, I I think consumers could really shape a whole new world if they started requesting more of those things. So yeah, teff granola, I'm going to have to um, order some of that and try it because I'm excited to check that out. Um, Dawn, one last question I want to ask you before we wrap it up, like with all of this stuff and you've lived around the world and you've had a very fascinating life, what gives you hope for the future?
1: Well, uh, yeah, peace and prosperity and unity, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, the big hopes. Um, yeah, I think it, 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 a lot of, um, the best things in life come as processes. So, uh, it, that would be, you know, as I, uh, get older, that's what I'd like to see is there's some progress, uh, working in, 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 in positive directions for, 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 uh, you know, living together in harmony, and then, and then, enjoying uh, life, and, and food is part of enjoying life, and, and, and sharing those things together. There's a lot we can learn from each other. Mm. Uh, so that is, uh, uh, keeping those things in mind, and in, in, you know, among some areas, I guess people are pulling in opposite directions. But really, the uh, the ultimate benefit to humanity is, is you know, not homogenizing uh, the world into one. Thing. Nobody's really talking about that, but being able to have a share our, our diversities in, in ways that are respectful and that mm-hmm. uh, help us all, you know, there's, a, there's just like an, in trade, trade benefits everybody economically. Well, so the same thing when you, when you exchange ideas and, and uh, uh, viewpoints and so on. So,
0: Absolutely. Uh, That's a good point. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, that definitely gives me hope too. So um, for our, our listeners who want to learn more, we will... Make sure that we put a link to NAMA and um, some more information, so you can connect with Dr. Osborne on LinkedIn or elsewhere. Um, is that a good place if someone wants to reach out to you and further this conversation offline? Is that the best way for them to reach you, Don?
1: Yeah, yeah, that is uh, that's it. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about other uh, links as well. There's a, the NAMA uh, actually ha- does have a, a, a web presence, although it's very minimal at the moment. We're planning something bigger. So those links can go on the show notes and that would be very helpful.
0: Yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that because, um, you know, we are like we've mentioned, we're ramping up to go into this UN year of the Millets next year. So we are really, really busy. If anybody feels passionate about this and wants to volunteer and help, um, we are definitely looking for more people to get behind the movement and to help, um, you know, just create this vision of the world that we see together. So, Don, thanks for joining me today. It's always a pleasure and um yeah, i'm, I'm glad we got time. this done yeah we'll we'll get uh, this, this published hmm?
1: yeah thanks. look forward to that and uh look forward to our next NAMA meeting and yeah and uh, take care
0: yeah that's awesome and you know um for those of you out there if this made you excited please m- take a moment to share this podcast um leave a review leave a rating um but most importantly just make sure that you share it with other people who have similar passions and want to learn and and let's regenerate. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc, a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil focused, minimize water use and maximize carbon sequestration all while radically impacting human nutrition learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com